Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. From the blackest corners of your mind, they call, pulling you deep into shadow, twisting your senses, keeping you from sleep. It's time to face your darkest fears. This is Tales to Terrify. Good evening, children of the night, and welcome to our last flashback episode before we take a little break from them for the summer. This week takes us back to October of 2012 and episode 39. This was a story that's really stuck with me throughout the years, and given the freshness in my mind and my habitual bad memory, I was honestly surprised to discover it originally aired that long ago. It's a little tale about zombies and a doctor's struggle with the boundaries of her Hippocratic Oath. Children of the Night, listen back with me to Tim Wagoner's Do No Harm, which first aired on Tales to Terrify episode 39, October 5th, 2012. One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. 
One size fits all seems like a good idea for clothes until you try them on. Same goes for healthcare. That's why United Healthcare offers flexible, budget friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. Learn more at uh1.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. The doctor stood in the middle of a street littered with wrecked and abandoned cars, gazing upon the twisted, bloodied bodies of her people lying motionless on the asphalt. A half-dozen in all, an even mix of male and female, ranging in ages from late teens to early seventies, empty metal buckets scattered around them. Several of the searchers had limbs missing, and those limbs that remained attached had been broken in numerous places. Their flesh was crisscrossed by ragged wounds, some injuries inflicted by knives, but just as many made by teeth. There was blood everywhere, thick and sticky in their hair, soaked dark into their clothes, pooled crimson on the blacktop around them. The doctor wasn't worried that her people were dead, though. For one thing, she didn't experience emotions such as worry anymore, couldn't remember a time when she did, no longer possessed the capacity to even understand the basic concept. But the main reason she didn't fear her people were dead was that these days death no longer meant what it used to. She turned to her right and looked at the lifter. No words passed between them, but none were necessary. The lifter gazed back at her for a moment, eyes unblinking. And then he shuffled toward the bodies. He was a tall male in his late thirties, broad-shouldered with thick black hair and facial stubble that would never grow again. He gave no signal, but three other cold ones followed him, all males, all big like him, though none of them as strong as they once were. While the four had possessed individual names before, they no longer did, and the doctor saw no reason to give them any. She simply thought of them, inasmuch as she could think at all, as lifters. The lifters were thinner than they used to be, limbs lean, faces narrow, but they were still strong enough to get the job done. The doctor watched the four males pick up the broken searchers and put them into the gray wooden wagon they'd pulled all the way from Oakview Street. Once it had been a farmer's wagon, drawn by horses, but the doctor recalled nothing of such things. She understood the big wheels turned and the flat surface the wheels supported was good for putting things onto, and that by pulling the wagon things could be transported from one place to another, and that was the extent of her knowledge on the subject. Still, she was the only one in the hive with such understanding, which is one of the things that made her queen. As the lifters worked, the doctor kept watch. She turned her head back and forth as the lifters piled the wounded into the cart, as much to keep scenting the air as to conduct visual surveillance. Heightened senses are one of the small one's gifts, and if any of Bolt's people approached, she'd smell them before seeing them. It was a warm afternoon in late April, a gentle breeze blowing, birds singing, and pollen thick in the air. 
The doctor had suffered from seasonal allergies when she'd been a warm one, but she breathed without discomfort now. The small ones inside her provided many benefits, immunity to allergens being among the least of them. The town of River's Edge was located in southwestern Ohio, and while the doctor remembered neither the town's name nor its location, she retained a dim recollection of spring, and she felt a slight stirring deep within, an echoing ghost of something that once might have been joy. But that feeling, faint as it was, was quickly superseded by a sense of wariness. Glenmont Street lay on the edge of Bolt's territory, and she understood instinctively that it had been members of his hive who'd attacked and injured the searchers as they'd been out scavenging for meat. It certainly hadn't been the warm ones doing. They committed their violence cleanly, a single bullet to the brain or a swift decapitation. Bolt was a savage creature, and thus his followers were savage too. The doctor looked up and down the deserted suburban street, and while she saw no sign that Bolt's people remained nearby, or better yet, smelled no sign, she knew better than to relax her guard. She carried no weapons, though they were easy enough to come by these days. As a rule, the cold ones didn't use guns. They could fire them well enough, though their aim was awful, but they didn't possess the fine motor skills necessary to reload, and the concept of firearm maintenance was well beyond their limited mental capacity. Simple hand weapons such as knives and clubs were easier for them to handle, but when she'd been a warm one the doctor had taken an oath to hurt no one, and while she no longer had any memory of making that vow, it was such a deep part of her that she continued to live by that oath today. And since she would carry no weapon, no member of her hive would either. It was the way of things now. A scent of dried blood and old filth drifted to her on the wind, and she knew that one or more of Bolt's people were returning. They needed to leave before the others arrived. Even malnourished, her lifters were stronger than she, but there were only four of them, and without weapons, and more to the point, without the savagery that drove Bolt's people, they would stand little chance against their attackers. In the wordless way of the queen, she urged the lifters to work faster, and they responded, moving stiffly but more rapidly, and within moments the last of the wounded was loaded onto the wagon. She'd gathered the searchers' buckets while the lifters worked, and dropped them in the wagon too. When everything was ready, the lifters took up their positions, two on either side of the wagon's shaft, grabbed hold of it, lifted, and began pulling. They were no longer as strong as they once were, and it took some effort to get the laden wagon moving, but finally the wheels turned and the wagon began rolling slowly down the street. The doctor walked alongside the wagon, senses alive and alert for danger. Though the wounded in the wagon displayed no signs of life, she could sense their pain, and on a level so deep she was scarcely aware of it, she wished she still could speak so that she might offer them words of comfort. But she had no voice, not to mention no capacity for language, and so she walked in silence. The most direct route to the hive's home was to take McKinley to Maine, and then continue on Maine to Oakview. The doctor recalled none of these names, didn't recognize the street signs for what they were, and even if she had, she wouldn't have understood the tiny marks on the signs were letters, let alone be able to read them. But she was able to find her way around River's Edge through instinct, and it was that same instinct which told her that the most direct route home was also the most risky. 
for McKinley Street was where the high school was located, and while she didn't remember what the group of buildings was called or its original purpose, she understood its current function quite clearly. It served as the worm one's nest. And a good nest it was, too. The ground floor entrances and windows had been barricaded to keep intruders out, and the worm ones were able to fire upon any attackers from the second floor windows or the roof. The Worm Ones were most active during the day, and while they tended to stick close to their home territory, it didn't pay for any cold one to roam too close to their nest, especially during the daylight hours. The wounded searchers in the back of the wagon needed to be returned to the hive's nest as soon as possible so the doctor could treat them, so she was willing to travel along the outskirts of the Worm Ones' territory, but she knew better than to go too deeply into it. She wanted to repair the searchers as soon as possible, but to do that, she and the lifters needed to survive to reach the hive. So they would take a more roundabout way, McKinley to Robertson to Hyacinth and then to Oakview, approaching the hive's home from the opposite direction. It would take longer, nearly 45 minutes longer, though the doctor no longer reckoned time by the ticks of a clock, but it would have to do. The doctor and the lifters continued toward home, moving in the slow, plodding way of their kind. There were many things the doctor no longer remembered, her human name chief among them. She'd once been Jennifer Carducci, M.D., a general practitioner in her early forties, married to an architect named Jim. They were so close, people often referred to them as J.J. as if they were one person, and mother of two children, Arlene, twelve, and Robbie, eight. She'd worked at Health Corps Physicians, Inc., a joint practice with two other doctors. Not the biggest practice in River's Edge, but large enough, and she'd been happy. Sure, there were student loans to repay, and the malpractice insurance payments were a bitch, and dealing with the red tape of insurance providers and the endless visits of pharmaceutical reps were persistent pains in her ass, but she loved being a doctor, almost as much as she loved being a wife and mother, and she wouldn't have traded her life for anything. And her life would have continued along that path, and everyone else's in the world would have continued trundling along theirs, if some insanely bright and well-intentioned corporate scientist hadn't invented the Vergrandi, from the Latin Vergrandis, meaning small. A quantum leap in nanotechnology, the Vergrandi were of special concern to the medical community, for they were designed to constantly renew the body's cellular structure, repairing injuries, protecting against disease, and combating aging. In short, they would do for humanity what physicians had been struggling to accomplish for thousands of years, make the practice of medicine obsolete. Jennifer had been skeptical when the first announcements of the Vergrandi's existence hit the news, but as the months passed and more information was released, she became cautiously optimistic. Yes, if the Vergrandi worked as advertised, her profession would become a thing of the past. But as far as she was concerned, the benefits for the human race far outweighed any personal inconvenience to herself and her fellow medical practitioners. But when it was revealed that the Vergrandi were, in a sense, alive and could reproduce, Jennifer's optimism began to wane. And when it was discovered that the nanodevices mimicked life to the point that they could mutate and evolve, her optimism gave way to fear. She was hardly alone in her misgivings. Many of the world's top scientists sounded increasingly strident notes of caution, but the company that held the patents on the Vergrandi assured everyone that the nanodevices were being tested under conditions of strictest safety, and there was nothing to worry about. And then the damned things learned how to move from one body to another like a virus and escaped their tightly controlled environment.
The nanodevices spread across the globe like a plague of good health, infecting the human race with almost unimaginable rapidity. Within three months, every man, woman, and child on the planet had millions of Agrandi floating in their bloodstreams, keeping them healthy and strong. At first, it seemed like the only people to suffer would be the stockholders of the company who'd accidentally given the Vergrandi to the world free of charge. But then things began to change. A small segment of the population became resistant to the Vergrandi, and their bodies rejected the nanodevices, returning the host to their previous state of unassisted health. A much larger segment of the population dropped dead, all within the course of a few weeks. No one was sure whether the bodies rebelled against the presence of the Fergrandi, or whether the nanodevices had somehow malfunctioned and killed their human host. A last segment of the population, larger than those who no longer possessed Fergrandi, but smaller than those who died, transformed. They continued to enjoy the health benefits of their artificially created passengers, but their higher brain functions deteriorated. Why? No one knew. Some malfunction in the Vergrandi's programming, perhaps, or a result of mutation. Some believed the Vergrandi purposely damaged their hosts' brains in order to keep them from being smart enough to discover a way to neutralize the nanodevices. Whatever the reason, the body temperature of those afflicted dropped significantly, their skin becoming ice blue and cold to the touch. And the Vergrandi inside them, who'd once drawn nourishment from the food their hosts ate, no longer were able to fuel themselves on Twinkies, fast food hamburgers, and other staples of the human diet. Now they could only metabolize one fuel source, human flesh, and not just any human, only those without active Vergrandi in their blood. The Vergrandi weren't cannibals, after all. They wouldn't eat others of their own kind. The cold ones seriously diminished brain functions, which also resulted in their becoming slow-moving and uncoordinated, should have given the warm ones the advantage, making it easy for them to reclaim the planet. But the Vergrandi gave their surviving children some new attributes to compensate for what they'd taken away. The cold ones began to group in hives centered around a king or queen, one of their kind who possessed a higher degree of mental functionality than the rest. In truth, the difference in brain power wasn't all that great, but in the kingdom of the mindless, the slightly more intelligent ruled. Once a hive formed, the Vergrandi linked together in a network that provided the hive members with a low-level degree of wordless communication that functioned like a form of telepathy, with the king or queen in control. Jennifer remembered none of this. She didn't remember her husband and children dying when the Vergrandi and their bodies turned sour for whatever unknown reason and she didn't remember the three days it took her to lose most of her mind as the nano-devices inside her, instead of killing her, which she would have much rather preferred, transformed her into a cold one. And not just any cold one, but a queen. Thus Jennifer, who thought of herself as the doctor when she thought of herself at all, found herself living in a new world, a mostly empty one, with only a handful of cold ones and warm ones scattered across the globe, contending with one another as they fought for survival. Not exactly better living through technology. The doctor looked down at the motionless searcher lying upon the examining table. There was no light in the room, but that didn't matter. Thanks to the small ones, her eyes could see in the dark as well as they could in full daylight, which, since there was no electricity to power the lights in the building, was useful. 
In her previous life as a physician, she would have examined the middle-aged woman, checked for symptoms, listened to her chest and lungs with a stethoscope, and then drawn on her training and experience to make a diagnosis and develop a treatment plan. But her mind didn't work that way anymore. Step-by-step -step logic was beyond her capabilities. But diminished as they were, she wasn't entirely without mental resources to draw on. The woman, who'd been an accountant named Phyllis Basner once, and a patient of the doctor's, as were most of the members of her hive, had lost her left leg below the knee and her right arm up to the shoulder, along with a good portion of her face, all thanks to Bolt's people. Her left arm and right leg were still attached, but the bones had been broken numerous places in both limbs. The small ones had stopped the bleeding, but they'd done nothing to seal the wounds or knit the broken bones, let alone begin regrowing the missing limbs. The small ones could work miracles, it was true, but they couldn't do it on their own. They needed help. They needed meat. The doctor bent down and reached into a metal bucket one of the lifters had brought in. Inside were pieces of a dead warm one Bolt's people had killed several days ago, bits of skin, muscle, fat, and organs they left behind when they were done feasting. The doctor's searchers had discovered the remains at the edge of their hive's territory, not far from where they'd been attacked today and they'd brought back everything they could scavenge off the mostly picked clean corpse. It hadn't been much, not even two buckets full, but it was more food than the hive had seen in a week. The doctor had been in contact with the searchers when they'd made their discovery, and she'd felt how tempted they were to devour the meat, little as it was, but she'd made them resist. They hadn't liked it, but they'd done as she commanded. They had no choice— and brought the meat back to the health corps building, where the doctor had once practiced medicine and which now served as the nest for her hive. The doctor had divided the meat equally between two buckets. She'd then fed the contents of one bucket to the weakest among her hive, those who could barely move, and she'd saved the second bucket for medical emergencies, like today. It wasn't fresh, but there was no electricity to power a refrigerator to keep it in, not that the doctor would have remembered how to use one even if the building had still possessed electricity. But the meat hadn't yet rotted to the point where the small ones couldn't draw at least some nourishment from it, so it would do. Though the searcher on the table appeared dead, the doctor could sense that the small ones inside her were still alive, just weak from lack of fuel. She pulled a gobbet of flesh out of the bucket, the mostly empty bucket, for this was the last of the six searchers she had treated today, and the meat was almost gone. She then straightened and placed the grisly morsel inside the woman's mouth. The woman didn't respond at first, but the doctor waited patiently, standing statue-still and unblinking. Eventually, the woman's jaw muscles twitched once, twice, and then she began to chew. The doctor could no longer understand that the Vergrandi didn't need to wait for the woman to swallow the meat, that even now they were flooding into her mouth, carried by saliva, and beginning to break down the meat into fuel for themselves. She only knew that meat would help, and that it wouldn't take long. The small ones went to work rapidly. First, they closed the most serious of the woman's wounds, the leg and arm stumps chief among them, so they wouldn't begin bleeding again. Then they set about repairing the broken bones in her two remaining limbs. The doctor watched as the limbs shifted and writhed like serpents, the bones inside making soft rustling sounds as they set themselves and began to fuse. But while the bones did rejoin, the limbs didn't straighten completely, and when the small ones finished their work, the woman's arm and leg had healed crooked. The woman began to show signs of life once more, moving her head so that she could gaze down at the bucket, 
hunger in her dull gaze, mouth moving as if she were imagining chewing on what meat remained within the bucket. The doctor had a basic understanding of what had happened. The morsels she'd fed the woman hadn't provided enough fuel for the small ones to repair her fully. They had done the best they could with what they'd been given. The same thing had happened to the five searchers the doctor had treated before this one, and all had turned out the same, functional but crippled. The doctor sent out a wordless summons, and a moment later a lifter came into the examining room. He picked up the searcher and carried her out. Before the door closed behind them, the woman cast a last longing look at the bucket, and then they were gone. The doctor knew the woman could no longer do the work of a searcher, not with only one leg. And of the others she'd attempted to heal, only two of them would be able to go out into the streets and search for meat again. The other three were just as crippled as the woman and just as unable to fulfill their role in the hive. The doctor knew that she should have ordered the lifters to destroy the wounded searchers, or better yet, never gone out to retrieve them in the first place. They had taken meat that others needed to survive, and for what? They were useless now, and they would still require meat to survive, meat they could no longer help procure. But the doctor had been unable to go against her nature. She had no choice but to bring the injured searchers back and heal them as best she could, imperfect as the results had been. Perhaps they could be put to work as watchers now. The Hive already had ten watchers posted in various places surrounding the health corps buildings, on the first floor of houses, atop roofs, standing in alleys, keeping an eye out for warm ones and bolts people. Having four more pairs of eyes out there wouldn't hurt. But what the Hive really needed was meat, and a lot more than what few scraps they could scavenge from bolts' leftovers. The doctor's understanding of things might have been quite limited these days, but she understood that all too clearly. Without meat, the small ones had no fuel to burn, and without fuel, they couldn't keep the cold ones strong and healthy. Without meat, the doctor's hive would wither and eventually die. But the doctor would hurt no one, could hurt no one, including the warm ones. She had no problem with her people eating the warm ones' meat, just as long as they did not kill the warm ones to get it. But with every passing day, it was becoming more difficult to find meat to scavenge. In the first few weeks after the hive had formed, meat had been plentiful enough. There were more warm ones around back then, and because meat had been relatively easy to come by, when Bolt's people killed, they'd done so with savage abandon, eating their fill and leaving the rest behind. The doctor wasn't sure Bolt's hive had searchers, lifters, or watchers. As far as she knew, he had only hunters, and they were sloppy and wasteful. Attributes that did nothing to make their hive stronger, but which were a benefit to hers. In addition, sometimes the warm ones would fight among themselves, and a death would result. The body might be buried, necessitating some digging, but more often it was left to lie where it fell, making retrieval a simple process for her searchers, as long as the body was outside the human's nest, of course. But there were fewer warm ones on the streets these days. They'd either learn to avoid the cold ones more effectively, or they'd joined with other warm ones in their nest. And with the scarcity of warm ones, Bolt's people had stopped being wasteful and started stripping the meat from their kills and taking it back to the rest of their hive. They were still somewhat sloppy when it came to stripping a carcass, but nothing like they had been. Overall, pickings were mighty slim for the doctor's hive these days, and while they were managing to survive, barely. They were hardly thriving. And this presented the doctor with a dilemma that she instinctively grasped. 
though she wasn't capable of fully articulating it to herself. She could not cause harm to others, but by not allowing her hive to actively hunt and kill warm ones, she was causing harm to her hive. But she could not choose to permit her hive to hunt. They were bound to her, and thus behaved as she did, and there was nothing that could be done about that. Could there? The doctor struggled to think, but it was so difficult, and she was physically weak from lack of meat. She hadn't eaten in days, denying herself so that the others in the hive might have food, but she knew she couldn't keep that up. She was queen. Her strength was the strength of the hive. There was still a bit of meat in the bucket, and the doctor picked it up and put it in her mouth. She felt a faint, distant hint of an emotion that might have been guilt that she was seeing to her needs ahead of others, but that didn't stop her from chewing and swallowing. She felt a familiar welcome warmth spread through her body as the small one swiftly broke down the meat, absorbed its nutrients, transformed them into energy, and delivered that energy to key systems in her body. In particular, she felt her link to the hive, which had grown somewhat tenuous over the last few days, strengthen once more, and she sensed a watcher's mind reaching for hers. She'd been distantly aware that someone had been trying to get her attention for the last several minutes, but now she could hear the watcher's mental call more clearly. This watcher was stationed at a ten-minute oil change garage just down the street from the health corps building, and he was crouched inside, doing his best to remain hidden while looking out the front window. The link between them was so strong now that the doctor could see what the watcher saw just as if she were crouching beside him. Though it was dusk outside, the watcher's eyes were as sharp as any member of the hive, and he had no trouble seeing a group of cold ones stealthily making their way through the alleys on the other side of the street. He knew they were cold ones because of the stiff, jerky way they moved, and he knew they weren't members of his hive because he would have felt a connection to them if they were. Bolt's people, then, closer to the health corps building than they'd ever come before. The doctor wondered what they were doing. Hunting? The last of the warm ones had abandoned this part of town weeks ago, and there was no meat to find here. Perhaps Bolt's people were having trouble finding meat, despite their more aggressive nature, and they were forced to hunt outside their territory. But a thought whispered from deep inside the doctor's mind, perhaps a remnant of the woman she'd once been, or perhaps simply a realization delivered by the Vergrandi. Whatever the case, the thought went as such. Bolt and his people were hunting all right, but they weren't hunting warm ones. They were hunting the location of the doctor's hive. The attack on the searchers earlier hadn't been the result of an accidental encounter. It had been planned. Bolt knew she would come to retrieve her wounded people, and when she had one of Bolt's cold ones, or perhaps even Bolt himself, had followed the doctor and her lifters back to the health corps building, and once he had the location of their nest pinpointed, he had summoned the rest of his people. Now they were massed together and moving toward the building, intending to attack and... and... Her mind struggled to put the pieces together, and the Vergrandi gave her brain a small boost to allow her to do so. Bolt was coming because he wanted to destroy the doctor's hive. With them eliminated, his hive would be the only one remaining in town, and there would be no more competition for meat. She was amazed that Bolt had been able to conceive of such a complex plan, let alone carry it out. Even with the Vergrandi's help, she could barely understand the concept of plan right now. But perhaps that was the answer. The small ones, in order to protect their hosts, had directed Bolton what to do, just as her small ones were guiding her now. 
the small ones had only two purposes, to survive and reproduce. They had already made great changes in their hosts to transform them into cold ones, and it seemed they could make even further changes in order to safeguard their existence if necessary. The doctor felt these things subconsciously more than understood them on a cognitive level, but she didn't need much in the way of brain power to know what to do next. Enemies were coming. The hive had to flee. She sent the command to her people even as she left the examining room. She told them to scatter throughout their territory, find a place to hide, and then remain there until she summoned them. She felt no fear, experienced no panic, only the urgency to depart the building with swift efficiency. Once in the hall, she bumped into members of her hive who were leaving the examining rooms where they'd been standing motionless, conserving their energy, waiting until such a time as their queen had a task for them to perform. Now they moved silently, faces expressionless, eyes empty of all thought and emotion, half of them heading for the front entrance, half for the rear, walking calmly as if they were still warm ones engaged in nothing more important than a routine fire drill. But there was nothing routine about what was happening. The doctor headed for the front of the building for no other reason than it was the closest exit for her. But when she reached the lobby, she found it jammed shoulder to shoulder with her followers, all jostling one another as they attempted to reach the door. Those who were too weak or crippled to walk on their own were carried by lifters, but given how malnourished the entire hive was, the lifters looked as if they might drop their passengers at any moment. With the doctor's arrival, her cold ones began to move aside to make room for her. She hadn't requested them to do so, but she was their queen, and instinct prompted them to get out of her way. They could only manage to create a narrow aisle for her, but it was enough. She started toward the glass doors that served as the entrance to the building, but before she was halfway across the lobby, she saw a group of cold ones approaching from outside, a male leading the way, a tire iron clutched tight in his hand. He was in his mid-thirties, medium height, stout, with shaggy blonde hair, thick arms and legs, and a round belly. He wore a red t-shirt with a yellow lightning bolt emblazoned on it, along with jeans and running shoes. His clothes were torn and encrusted with dried bloodstains, rendering the lightning bolt almost invisible. The doctor hadn't known Bolt in life. He hadn't been one of her patients, and their paths had never crossed before the Vagrandi had come and changed the world forever. She'd only seen him once before, from a distance while she'd been out helping her searchers, but she had instinctively recognized him as a hive king, and she'd felt an instant instinctive antipathy toward him. He obviously felt the same way about her, for his fleshy blue-tinged features twisted into a mask of hate, lips drawn back from his teeth in a feral grin, eyes blazing with rage, and he started toward her. The members of her hive needed no prompting from her to act. She was their queen, and they would do whatever was necessary to protect her. They closed ranks before Bolt, blocking him from reaching the doctor, and the male snarled, raised his tire iron, and brought it down on the head of one of the hive in front, an elderly male who was so thin from malnourishment that he looked like a skin-draped skeleton. Bolt was much better fed than the doctor's people, and he was able to put a decent amount of muscle behind his strike. The tire iron crunched into the old man's head, denting the top of his skull, and he collapsed as if he were a machine whose off switch had just been flipped. Normally, the small ones inside him would have been able to compensate for the injury, healing it instantly, but they had few reserves to draw on. The man wasn't dead, the doctor would have sensed that, but he wasn't going to be getting up any time soon. 
More of Bolt's people were filing into the building, men and women, adults and children, young and old, all of them armed with knives, bats, hammers, broken bottles. Simple weapons, but deadly in the right hands. Especially when their opponents couldn't lift a finger to fight back. Bolt's eyes locked onto hers, and he grinned savagely. He was a king, his mind stronger than the average cold one, and though she couldn't literally hear his thoughts, she had no trouble understanding the message implicit in that awful smile. You're mine. At a wordless command from Bolt, the members of his hive started forward, wielding their weapons with crude efficiency. The doctor's people stood their ground, taking blows and strikes with detached passivity, doing nothing to defend themselves. One by one, they bled and they fell, and the doctor could do nothing but watch and know that it was her fault. If only they would fight. But she could not cause harm, and therefore neither could they. All they could do was stand there and allow members of the rival hive to ravage their flesh in defense of a queen who could do nothing to save them. Her instincts kicked in then, warning her that she couldn't afford to stand there any longer, not if she didn't want Bolt, who was swinging his tire iron in deadly arcs, the metal coated with blood, brain matter, and bits of sodden hair, to kill her. So she turned and began to walk down the hallway as rapidly as her stiff-legged gait would permit her, heading for the back door, Bolt's shout of frustration following her. He might have been cunning enough to draw her out into the open and follow her back to the hive's home, but he was still a cold one, and he wasn't smart enough to send some of his people to attack from the rear, and the doctor stepped out of the health corps building and into an empty alley. She turned right and kept walking at a good clip, and as she fled she sent a message to her hive, telling them to flee the building and hide themselves. She would summon them later when it was safe, assuming it ever would be again. She walked on, keeping to the shadows, feeling the pain of those left behind as they surrendered to the violence of their attackers, Bolt and his people doing their savage best to make sure their enemies would never rise again. A half-moon hung high overhead and the cool night air was still. The doctor stood next to a large oak tree, keeping close to the trunk so that she might seem to be part of it should anyone glance in her direction. The tree was one of several dotting the grounds of the high school, and the doctor had stood here for three hours, gazing upon the dark buildings where the warm ones lived. She had seen few signs of life during the time she'd been here. The warm ones rarely ventured out at night, though they had sentries posted and the doctor remained concealed to avoid offering them target practice, and they kept their windows barricaded and little light leaked through. But sometimes she'd see a flickering shadow pass by a window, perhaps caused by a warm one carrying a candle to light his or her passage through the school's hallways. The doctor had come here for two reasons. The first was that her small ones whispered that this was the last place Bolt would look for her, for he wouldn't be any more eager to place himself in the warm one's gun sights than she was. The second reason was because she wanted to think, or at least come as close to thinking as she was capable of. These buildings were filled with meat, maybe the last meat in River's Edge. Meat her hive desperately needed if it was to survive. Meat they couldn't claim because she wasn't a hunter, wasn't a killer, and therefore no one in her hive could be either. She was queen. She was supposed to lead her hive, guide them, protect them. But all she was doing was slowly killing them. Something had to be done. But what? So she stood motionless in the night next to the tree, 
gazing upon the dark buildings filled with meat, trying to cudgel her dead brain into providing some kind of answer. But she didn't need to think, not when the small ones inside her could do the thinking for her. The hive needed meat, and since they could no longer scavenge it, they needed a leader who could kill. The small ones had changed the doctor once, and now, with the hive's survival at stake, they began to change her again. The transformation was well underway when she sent the hive a command to gather at a new location. She left the shelter of the oak tree and began walking away from the warm one's nest, the small ones inside her hard at work. The moon was hidden behind clouds by the time the doctor reached the house. Her house, the one she used to share with her husband and children. She hadn't chosen this location for the hive's rendezvous consciously, and she had only the vaguest sense that this place had once been important to her but it seemed fitting, a two-story house at the end of a cul-de-sac in a little neighborhood situated on the southern edge of the largest park in River's Edge, with a view of a duck pond from the kitchen window. No cozy glow from the windows, no porch light on and waiting for her. The house was dark, so much so that it seemed painted black, and the surrounding yard covered with tar. Strange how dark it was. Normally she could see so much better at night. As she walked up the driveway, she realized her sight wasn't the only sense that had diminished. Her hearing wasn't as sharp as it used to be, and her sense of smell was dulled. And she felt warmer than usual, warmer even than she had felt after eating meat. Almost as warm as when she'd been... been... She tried to reach out to the hive, to touch their minds through the link they shared, to confirm that they had gathered in the house as she had commanded, to check and see how many of them had survived Bolt's attack. But she felt nothing. The link was gone. She stepped onto the front porch and reached for the doorknob, but she hesitated before gripping it. She wasn't sure why, but she was experiencing an emotion she hadn't felt in a long time one that only a short time ago she wouldn't have been able to put a name to, but she could name it now. Fear. Foolish. She was queen. She had no reason to fear her hive. She opened the door. It wasn't locked, and the knob turned easily, and entered. It was dark inside, and she walked slowly through the foyer, trailing her fingers along one of the walls to guide her. When she reached the hall, she turned right and kept going until she reached the great room. They were waiting for her there. She couldn't see them, but she could hear their soft breathing, and even with an unenhanced sense of smell, their odor, like overcooked meat stored in the refrigerator too long, was unmistakable. She wanted to communicate to them through the link, reassure them that everything would be all right, but instead, for the first time since the small ones had taken up residence in her body, she opened her mouth and spoke. I'm home, she said. The surviving members of her hive fell upon her eagerly, and as their teeth tore into her now warm flesh, she understood what the small ones had done to her, and she approved. The hive would have meat tonight. True, they would be without a queen, but without her reluctance to harm others holding them back, they would be free to hunt, and free to find another hive. Perhaps Bolt would claim them. He would be a good king for them, for he was far more suited to survive in this world than she was. Yes, her people were free, and now, through the grace of the small ones, so was she.
That was Tim Wagoner's Do No Harm, as read by Ruth Stearns. If you'd like to hear more details on this story, or listen to it in the context of the full episode, I've put a link to it in the show notes. And until next time, children of the night, stay safe and stay sane. Want to get a chiseled look in the jawline? Sculpt and shape your jawline with added volume from Juvederm Volux XC. Juvederm Volux XC is an injectable gel specifically designed to be robust enough to improve moderate to severe loss of jawline definition. And it is the first and only hyaluronic acid filler approved for the jawline. Add volume to your jawline for a chiseled look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M dot com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.